Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's 6 a.m. in Jakarta, 10 a.m. in Sydney, and 6 p.m. right here in New York. I'm Paula Newton in for Julia Chatterley, and wherever you are in the world, this is your first move. And a very warm welcome to First Move. Here's what you need to know. NATO allies reject talk of sending troops to Ukraine after French President Emmanuel Macron said nothing should be excluded. President Biden's stance on Israel and Gaza is under scrutiny in the U.S. primary swing state of Michigan. Inside Iran, CNN on the ground in Tehran ahead of the country's upcoming elections. And Dodgers debut baseball superstar Shohei Otani takes to the field after his $700 million deal. We have all of that coming up. But first, no troop deployment. Leaders in Europe now making it clear that they're not planning to send any troops to Ukraine. And Washington reiterates that President Joe Biden has ruled out deploying U.S. forces to the country. Now, this comes after French President Emmanuel Macron said this after hosting a meeting of European leaders. There's no consensus today to officially send support and take responsibility for troops on the ground. But as things develop, nothing should be off the table. We will do everything necessary so that Russia cannot win this war. Now, Moscow warns if that were to happen, conflict would be, in its words, inevitable. Meantime, in Ukraine, the country is losing more ground. The military says it retreated from two key villages in the Donetsk region on Tuesday. Ivald Alder is the U.S. was the U.S. ambassador to NATO under President Obama. He is now the CEO of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and really glad to have you. As we continue to try and figure out what these comments were about from Macron, you know, President Macron knows a red line when he sees one. With this comment, he clearly was trying to actually paint one for Putin. He must have known it would rattle allies. So what do you think this is all about? Is it a measure, perhaps, of just how worried he is about Ukraine's capacity to keep up this fight with Russia? Well, no doubt there, uh, the circumstances today that uh, Ukraine faces uh, in the war in Russia are tenuous, uh, to say the least. Uh, the Ukrainians are on the defensive. The Russians are trying to push through on the offensive. And the real problem that Ukraine faces is the lack of 
American military support because it's stuck uh, in the House of Representatives. And I think you're hearing part of that frustration. But on another level, uh, I think what you were hearing from President Macron is is a bit of a political theater. Uh, it's very easy to call uh, for steps that no everyone knows are not going to happen. It is not a surprise to the Elysee Palace uh, where where he sits, or to the president, or anybody around him, that the immediate reaction from everyone, from the Germans, uh, from the United States, uh, from every ally, uh, was sorry, not going to do that. There's two things that NATO said it would do. One, help Ukraine as best they can to defend itself. And second, not to make sure that NATO gets involved in this war unless NATO itself gets attacked. And that hasn't happened. Understood. And yet this did cause a lot of controversy in Europe. I just want to bring up the front page of uh, Liberation, basically saying that uh, Macron stepped into a minefield. People are talking about this and for good reason, given the situation of the conflict in Ukraine. You know, when you were the U.S. ambassador to NATO just before Russia annexed Crimea, was there a sense of how to deal with Putin? Do you believe Western allies have been too timid in this conflict with Ukraine? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I, you know, it's clearly the case that uh, we could have pushed harder and we could have pushed quicker. Uh, it's easier to say uh, after the fact than before. Remember that when this war started, uh, most people thought it was going to be over uh, in a uh, in a few weeks. Uh, and uh, we've only learned how much and how far we could help the Ukrainians and how much the Ukrainians were able to do themselves. Uh, but uh, clearly, if we had done more earlier, uh, then perhaps you could be in a slightly different position. But we are where we are. And as you say, uh, President Macron, I mean, did step into a minefield that kind of blew up on him. Uh, no one is going to support him on, on sending troops, uh, nor do I think that there was any serious consideration by the French to set, send any troops. They could do so if they wanted to. Nobody will stop them. Uh, it is uh, perfectly their own right to help uh, directly uh, with the defense of Ukraine, but I don't see them likely to do that. They have provided some military equipment, but compared to most other countries, not as much, certainly not as much as the Germans and nothing compared to what the United States has done. So maybe start, start there. Okay, but the situation on the battlefield is still quite stark, right? And especially if we get back to what you also mentioned, which was that U.S. funding. What happens if the U.S. fails to fund that Ukrainian uh, military and humanitarian aid? It will get extremely difficult for the Ukrainians to hold the line. Uh, certainly after uh, months and months more fighting, they are running out of ammunition. They are running out of air defense system. It is absolutely critical that the U.S. meet the requirements that uh, the Ukrainians have. Uh, every other country has, st uh, has stood up. Every other country is providing what they can. Uh, mo most countries are providing far more as a percentage of GDP than, uh, than the United States is. And here we are. Uh, now almost um, six months waiting for Congress to act and pass a package that everyone knows the Ukrainians need and is necessary. And let's be clear, it's not just about Ukraine. If the United States' word, if the credibility of the United States is no longer, uh, can no longer be taken for granted, can no longer be believed, it's not just our friends who are going to ask questions and, and start asking the kinds of things that we saw Macron saying. It's our enemies who are going to perhaps push us uh, a little further uh, beyond the line that we want to. So we should all get together 
make sure that this aid gets passed and help Ukraine to make sure that it can defend itself and ultimately that we can end this conflict in terms favorable to Ukraine and make sure that Russia loses. You know, I do want to talk about that European security, though, as a former um, ambassador to NATO, uh, you certainly have had thoughts for several years about where America stands, even before Trump's latest comments on NATO. And I'll remind everyone that he said uh, if they didn't pay their bill, so to speak, the allies, that I would encourage them, meaning Russia, to do whatever the hell they want. You know, you wrote again that, and this is just a few weeks ago, before Trump even said this, you wrote that Trump told EU leaders, I will never come to your defense. How does Europe or the other allies prepare for that scenario? Because right now we don't know the outcome of the election in November. No, and I think this is uh, this is what's happening. Uh, very serious conversations are being taking place in in uh, in Europe. Uh, I was in Munich, as as were so many others, a few weeks ago, when uh, at a major security conference where uh, European leaders really thought that they were sort of caught between a Putin who seems to be more willing to use military force to do the kinds of things that we are seeing him doing, and the United States that increasingly cannot be relied upon. We're seeing that with the with the Ukraine aid, and then of course, if Donald Trump uh, were to come back to the Oval Office, it's quite clear that they won't be able to rely on the United States to come to their defense. So what they're starting to do, and I think you're seeing uh, part of that in, in Macron's uh, comments, is to say, what can we do together to make sure that we can defend ourselves uh, against the growing threat from Russia, hopefully with the United States, but if, God forbid, the U.S. is not going to be there to be able to do it ourselves. So there's a seriousness in Europe. Uh, when it comes to defense spending, uh, when it comes to thinking about where and how to deploy forces and to cooperate. Just in the last two years, defense spending has risen by the Europeans 21%. That is, a, in real terms, that is a real increase in defense, far bigger than the U.S. Uh, has done in order to deal with this threat. Of course, Europe was, for 30 years, didn't think war was going to come to the continent. It is on the continent. They now understand it's serious. And unfortunately, uh, many are starting to question whether the United States will continue to be alongside them as the U.S. has been since uh, the beginning of World War right. II. But, but what, it, what are the consequences uh, of the U.S. not being there? You know, in your 2018 book, it's called The Empty Throne, Ab America's Abdication, um, certainly of global influence. And you write that American diplomacy, you wrote this back then, that American diplom diplomacy is in shambles. You said that that would be not just an erosion of the post-war order, but you said it would be dangerous. So how high are the stakes now? We are six uh, years out from that with a major war going on in Europe. I think uh, we are living in extraordinarily dangerous times. The entire post-war period in which the United States took a role by uh, with bipartisan support, Democratic and, and Republican presidents, believing that the United States needs to be engaged in the world, uh, that it should have a strong security alliance and lead those alliances, that it should defend and, and, and protect human rights and, and democracy uh, wherever it is threatened, and importantly, uh, where it has an open uh, economic system uh, and uh, promotion of free and fair trade. Those were the, the, the principles of American engagement. They were part of the Democratic Party. They were part of the Republican Party, but they aren't any longer. There is a growing debate within the Republican Party in particular, uh, represented by Donald Trump and the movement that, uh, that he is leading, that is questioning 
uh, America's engagement. Uh, for the first time in polling that we have done at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, for the first time in 50 years, a uh, majority of Republicans, 53%, now think that the U.S. is better off if it does stays at home and is not engaged in the world. We've never had that before. Uh, that is what's different. And a United States that is no longer willing to engage in the world uh, will leave a world that is much more dangerous, that is much more uh, subject to the, the whims of, uh, uh, of dictators and ruthless enemies that we have, uh, and is leaving our friends and allies uh, by themselves. And ultimately, that's going to hurt the United States. It will hurt our export markets. It will hurt our prosperity. It will hurt our security. And, and, uh, and ultimately, it may hurt our freedom. We've achieved so much in the last 80 years. That's what at stake is in this election. It's not just a question of which president wins. It is a question of which vision of America's role in the world will win. And uh, right now, we're having a real debate about that. Ambassador Dollar, I'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Now, no deal at the White House after President Joe Biden met with congressional leaders urging them to pass a new aid package for Ukraine. House Speaker Mike Johnson says Republicans still want to address the southern border crisis before acting on Ukraine. Listen. We had a a, a couple of meetings there. It was uh, frank and honest. I think we need more frank and honest conversations on Capitol Hill. So I was happy to participate in this. We did uh, that as a group. And then I had a uh, one-on-one for a period of time with the president, just he and I in the Oval Office. Uh, Let me say this. When I showed up today, my purpose was to express what I believe is the obvious truth. And that is that we must take care of America's needs first. And this is what Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had to say. And so we said to the speaker, get it done. I told him, this is one of the moments, I said, I've been around here a long time. It's maybe four or five times that history is looking over your shoulder. And if you don't do the right thing, whatever the immediate politics are, you will regret it. Manu Raju now joins us from Washington. I mean, Manu, we just had a very sobering conversation with a former U.S. ambassador to NATO. I mean, look, of course, today you would tell me a deal was way too much to hope for. But did you get a sense that progress was made? Uh, It's unclear. There was one thing that was clear is that there was one person who was sort of the odd man out in that room, and that was Mike Johnson. He faced uh, serious pressure, not just from the Democrats in the room, not just from the president or the vice president, also from the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, who has been a staunch advocate for more money for Ukraine. In fact, he was one of 22 out of 49 Senate Republicans who voted for that larger 95 billion dollar aid package that included roughly 60 billion in aid to Ukraine that passed earlier in the month in February that's what Mike Johnson has said that he will not move on in fact Mitch McConnell was pretty direct he said that Johnson should put that Senate package on the floor and essentially to see whether or not it has the votes to pass. The expectation is that it would have the votes to pass. And McConnell even said, don't make any changes to this plan at all because doing so, even if any any House modifications, that will force the Senate to have to reconsider to take up those, those House changes and that could delay the process even further for getting aid to Ukraine. So he's pushing for simply a vote on that, on that Senate package approve a package. But Mike Johnson made clear in that meeting and in after that meeting that 
that the border security measures in the United States need to be dealt with first. He said that the Senate plan to deal with border security. There was a bipartisan deal that they came up with just a few weeks ago. Johnson scuttled that because he opposed it. Donald Trump opposed it. They contended it did not go far enough. Now there is no bipartisan deal on the border, so it's unclear exactly how this will get resolved. But one thing is clear, Paula, pressure is intensifying internationally, domestically, and even in Johnson's own House Republican conference. There are senior members of that conference who are trying to figure out if they have their own way forward on Ukraine aid, and that is going to pressure him to decide what to do, mm -hmm. move forward on that plan, or get jammed by his own members. There are parliamentary maneuvers in which you can force a vote on the House floor, it does, even if the Speaker opposes that plan. It's unclear if they would have enough support to do that, but that is one pressure point that will play out in the coming weeks, especially if Johnson doesn't act. Yeah, all Paula. eyes, all eyes on the House in the hours and days to come. Manu Raju for us, thanks so much, appreciate it. Now, in less than two hours, polls close in the U.S. battleground state of Michigan, and its primary election poses a big test for President Joe Biden. Now, he's facing a backlash from Michigan's Arab American voters over his strong support for Israel. On the Republican side, meantime, Nikki Haley is hoping to gain some ground against frontrunner Donald Trump. Haley did not hold back in a recent interview, saying a Trump nomination would be, quote, like suicide for our country. Omar Jimenez is in Waterford, Michigan, with the latest. You have been there as people have been voting all day, Omar. Not a lot of people behind you, uh, but certainly a lot at stake here as we're learning in this primary for both parties. A lot at stake. And, you know, we've been talking to voters over the course of today and we've heard, as you can imagine, a wide range of opinions as they place their support either for President Biden, former President Trump or uh, former South Carolina governor and former U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley. For some of the Trump voters we've spoken to, it's really been immigration and the economy has been top of mind issues for them. For some of the Biden voters, it's been the economy and making sure there is human decency in the White House to use uh, their words words. But bottom line, all of them do feel the stakes of what this election year is going to bring. Take a listen to uh, basically two sets of voters, the first being Biden supporters and the second being a Trump supporter about why they are placing their support in those camps. I wish there was an alternate, um, a different choice, but I think he is the most uh, reliable, experienced candidate at this point. Yeah, He's going to surround himself with good people that will tell him when he's doing something wrong. That's not going to happen with Donald Trump. He's going to surround himself with yes people. And um, that's, that's terrifying. I like the way the country ran underneath him. Yeah, he's not my favorite guy. But uh, he got the job done. And unfortunately, we don't need more politicians. We need more people that come in and do the job. And he was, of course, talking about Donald Trump. But another wrinkle that is interesting in this particular primary here in Michigan, and you mentioned it before coming to me, there is a major campaign here in the state uh, led by Arab American activists to vote uncommitted instead of voting for uh, President Biden over his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. Now, they've said that if they can get 10,000 uncommitted votes, then that will be considered a victory, though it is important to note that even without a campaign like this in previous 
elections, we had seen double the amount of people vote uncommitted for various reasons that they have chosen uh, in the past. But it's significant because here in the state of Michigan, not only is does this state have the largest Arab American population of anywhere else in the country, uh, nearly 150,000 or so, but that is also the margin of victory that Joe Biden had over Donald Trump in this state back in 2020, around 150,000 votes. So obviously a very significant voting block. And that is the major, uh, major takeaway, I would say, from this primary is that we're not expecting any surprises here as far as Joe Biden is going likely going to take the Democratic primary win here. And Donald Trump is likely going to take the Republican primary win here. But it's those signs of the general election factions of support that we are learning in this key battleground state of Michigan that will likely make the difference come November over who the next president of the United States will be. Yeah, and for that reason, all eyes on Michigan, not just tonight, but for months to come. Omar Jimenez for us. Thanks so much as we continue to watch the coverage. CNN special coverage of the Michigan primaries begins right here, 8 o'clock New York time, 9 a.m. in Shanghai, 10 a.m. in Seoul. Now, it is Shohei time. Shohei show time. Yes, it was quite a show. Baseball sensation Shohei Otani hitting a home run in his spring training debut with the L.A. Dodgers. The pitcher and designated hitter signed with them in December. You'll remember for our record $700 million. Now, I'll remind you, elbow surgery rehab will keep him from pitching this season. But Don Riddell is going to remind us right now it's not going to stop him from putting on a show. I don't even follow baseball that much, but I follow him. Yeah, and you know, we might get even more of a show when he's got the bat in his hand because, I mean, he's such a rare player. He's the first player since Babe Ruth all those decades ago to come out and try and pitch and hit brilliantly uh, during every game that he plays. But yes, as you say, the Tommy John surgery means that he won't be pitching at all this season. So he's only going to be swinging the bat. And if this is uh, any indication, it's going to be a great season uh, for Shohei and the LA Dodgers. Uh, Remember, huge amount of interest in this player even before he made this deal. He moved a very short distance from the Angels to the Dodgers, both teams playing in Los Angeles. Uh, And he's brought so much excitement to this franchise and the fan base. And he's not going to be taking most of that $700 million until the decade is up, which means the team can invest so much more money in his teammates, which is why the Dodgers fans are so excited uh, about what could happen this season. Of course, Otani wants it to work. He hasn't won anything yet in his career. He's almost certainly going to be remembered as the best player of his generation, if not the best of all time. He'll be in that conversation, but he hasn't won anything yet. And so it has to work out with the Dodgers. They were actually surprised at the speed of his recovery. They weren't necessarily intending to have him out playing this early in spring training, but clearly he's doing better than they thought. They're excited that he's playing. Season is still several weeks away. It's not going to be until the end of March that this all actually counts for real, Uh, but a great sign and a great day for Otani and the Dodgers. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm no sports analyst like you, Don, but he looked excited to be there and looked excited to be hitting. And uh, from the looks of the crowd, it seems like a, a good way to see him, right? <laughs> Go to spring training. Uh, yeah. Definitely, you get good, some good seats. Don, uh, thanks so much for following it for us right. as we continue to follow him. Appreciate it. 
And your up-to-the-minute weather forecast is just ahead, plus the global outlook for the video game industry is anything but fun and games these days. Large-scale layoffs at Sony's PlayStation division highlights the tough times ahead. We'll discuss what's gone wrong after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to First Move and a good Wednesday morning if you are just waking up with us in Asia. Now, in today's Money Move, U.S. stocks finished Tuesday's session mixed. New numbers showing U.S. consumer confidence falling for the first time since October, and that put some pressure on some stocks, but helped out those blue chips. Stocks in the news include Viking Therapeutics. Its shares spiked more than 120% after its experimental weight loss drug showed promise in new trials. Meantime, Macy's also rallied. The venerable department store chain says it will close 150 underperforming locations and it's part of a new turnaround push. Now, a bountiful day, we'll call it, for Bitcoin as well. Look at that. The price of Bitcoin surpassing $57,000 during Tuesday's trading before falling back just a bit. That, in case you were wondering, is a two-year high. And a mixed day of trade in Asia today, Japanese stocks closed flat, but Chinese stocks powered ahead. Now, there is more evidence that the video games industry is facing tough times. Sony is laying off 900 employees at its PlayStation division. The cuts include the closure of an entire studio in London. Now, Sony says it's trying to get the business ready for the future and admits the industry has changed immensely. Gaming revenue has fallen post-pandemic. Both Epic and Riot Games also announced layoffs last year. Christopher Dring is head of the gaming website gamesindustry.biz and he joins us now. Thanks for being with us. Uh, can you school me a little bit here and what's going on? You know, it seemed for a while that PlayStation couldn't lose. It's still a market leader. So what's going on now with the tough times? Well, PlayStation, it's still the market leader. Um, Sony still makes some of the best games in the industry. And in fact, just last October, they released um, Spider-Man 2, which was highly praised. And I think it's gone on to do 10 million units. So it's been a big hit. The problem for PlayStation, and actually not just PlayStation, but also Xbox, is the audience isn't really growing. 
Meanwhile, the costs of making these prestigious games are going up and up and up. Um, Spider-Man 2 uh, reportedly cost $300 million to make, which is three times what its predecessor uh, cost, which came out in 2018. Um, all of this is impacting Sony's margins, and so they basically need to do two things, which is get their costs under control and find new customers, and the layoffs are part of that, um, getting their costs under control. It will get to the part about trying to find new customers, but given the killer competitive business we're talking about here in gaming, I mean, I think about it, 14,000 games apparently released on PC last year alone. So what will this industry look out after, you know, this shakeout and what some people are calling a great correction here? Yeah, so the, the situation is that, you know, during the pandemic, lots of people rushed in and started playing video games. They were locked down. They played a lot of games. There's a lot of money being spent, um, a lot of growth. A lot of new studios were opening. Um, uh, existing studios were expanding rapidly. And there was also huge, huge acquisitions. We saw the Activision Blizzard acquisition. Uh, Microsoft bought them for nearly $70 billion. Absolute scenes amount of money being spent. And, and then, of course, things have come back down. The macroeconomic situation with cost of living and cost of business and, and, in, and inflation is, is, uh, wasn't expected. And um, and now the company, these companies have got too big. They're spending too much money. Um, there's too many games coming out. You mentioned the number of games there, uh, uh, which is creating a really tough competitive scene. We're also seeing these games, these what live service games is big online games which are soaking up time people are spending hundreds of hours playing these games so they're not buying other games all of that stuff is sort of causing a big change a big shift it is a correction and um, the games industry is still growing um broadly speaking uh, it's still a young industry there are still generations of people in this world that never grew up with video games that isn't something that exists with film and books and, and, and music so this is an industry that will bounce back but there is there is not clear path to where that growth is going to come from in the short term so vr virtual reality hasn't particularly taken off and neither has subscriptions. Yeah, and that's the part I find interesting, meaning there is no clear path about where this industry is going next. You know, we're used to the big studio film industry, the Hollywood blockbusters. You know, a lot of those have been shelved. They're too expensive to make. Do, do you think that we'll still have those kinds of expensive games and then have a different tier to it? Or do you believe they have to find a whole new customer base along with new ways to deliver these games to people? Yeah, so there's quite a few, quite, 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 quite a lot to that 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 topic. So video games cost increasing in cost. That has to start. So they have to find ways to make games a little bit cheaper. AI is potentially a solution to that in the short, um, in the long term. Um, but there's also a need to find new customers. PlayStation, for instance, is now putting its games on PC increasingly because in order to find new audiences, they're looking into mobile. Xbox have gone even further. They're actually putting some of their games onto PlayStation in order to find new customers. And that's a sort that's more of a short-term solution. Um, and um, so they need to get the cost down. They need to find new customers. And they also, the other thing that people are, are looking at longer term is streaming. So um, things like the way Netflix is streamed to your TV and, and other, other services available. Um, video games doesn't really have that solution. It's a little bit more, it does exist, but it's a lot more complicated. It doesn't work quite so well at this moment. But the idea that you uh, are being able to get these games without having to buy the $500 box under your TV, that's seen as a way to sort of lower the barrier to entry and hopefully expand the market for games. So these high-end games, of course, the mobile games industry, Industry is huge and in, in, in everyone's got a games device in their pocket these days. Uh -huh, absolutely. Uh, Christopher Dring, you definitely did school me. Learned a lot there. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
Now, a soggy week ahead, unfortunately, for our friends along the Pacific Rim. And Japan's snow threat may be easing up a bit, but Australia and China bracing for some heavy rain with, yes, a winter chill to top it all off. Chad Myers, good to see you again, my Hello. friend. And I, I, I guess, you know, the snow in Japan was helpful for those skiers, but some other sure. surprises in store. You know, and, and they'll use that water that is melted in the snow later in the year as running water. I mean, it, that is the filtered water that comes down through the creeks and streams and into some reservoirs there. We will get some rain into Shanghai this week. Also, maybe a shower or two in Beijing. And that rain that comes through Shanghai does get up toward Kyushu. And this is going to cause some heavier rainfall there, probably in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 millimeters of rainfall. Not likely not enough to cause any flooding, but it will certainly be a wet couple of days there. Still warm in Hong Kong for the next two and then cooling down a little bit for the weekend. It warms back up for next week, back to above normal. Kind of hard to see here, but that frigid air really does stay to the north, trying to come down. But now all of a sudden, our days are longer, the sun's out for longer, and it's harder for that cold air to get too much farther south because even if it does get south, the Sunshine warms it right back up again, so we'll take that. Here we go into Shanghai all the way to 14 by Monday. After a few showers, of course, we talked about that. Now we get a little bit farther down to the south into Australia. This is the area that has seen an awful lot of rainfall in the past couple of weeks from a few tropical systems and more rain coming in out here. Really, though, for NT, what we need, Paula, is for this rain, and it's not going to happen, to get down toward Victoria because the wildfires, the bushfires in Victoria have been horrific again this year. Winds have been 35, 45 kilometers per hour, and it's hot and dry, and these fires are still out of control, and yet you need it down there below my screen, and it's not going to get anywhere near there. They need the rain. All they're going to get is dry and wind. We'll keep hoping for them and that rain, especially as yeah. their fall is set to begin. Chad Meyer, right. thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Coming, coming up for us, CNN reporting from inside Iran as the country prepares for legislative elections later this week. You don't want to miss this. Warm welcome back to First Move and a look at some of your international headlines this hour. No troops to Ukraine. That's what the U.S. State Department is saying after French President Emmanuel Macron floated the possibility of sending Western troops there. His suggestion, unpopular at home and abroad, has led to pushback from the leaders of Germany, the U.K. and other NATO members. One of the lawyers for the late Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, reportedly placed under house arrest Tuesday. The lawyer later telling a news outlet he has since been released. He had traveled with Navalny's mother last week as she fought to retrieve her son's body. Navalny's team is struggling to find a venue to actually hold his funeral. Japan's birth rate fell for the eighth year in a row in 2023, dipping to a new record low. The top government spokesperson responded by saying Japan will ramp up programs encouraging couples to have more children, like expanding childcare and giving raises to younger workers. An Australian photographer is accusing Taylor Swift's father of punching him at a Sydney after party. The photographer described Swift's entourage to CNN as, quote, aggressive and unprofessional. A spokesperson for the singer says two people pushed toward her aggressively. Police say they are investigating an alleged assault where the party was held without naming Swift's father. 
Voters in Iran are preparing to head to the polls Friday. It's the country's first election since the mass protests in 2022 over the death of a young woman in police custody. And it makes Friday's vote certainly one to watch. And one big question will be the turnout. CNN is on the ground in Iran speaking to voters. Our Fred Plaikin has our report. Iranian conservatives with a show of force ahead of what many say will be a key election on Friday, supporting their leadership's tough stance against both the U.S. and Israel. His sons Ihsan and Hossein dressed up in military fatigues. Voter Mohammed Kalantari says he wants to show the U.S. Iran's strength. They know that Iran is a powder keg, he says. It only takes a spark to blow up the entire region. Iranian youth, me and the children, are wearing these clothes to say that we are the soldiers of this country. And this man says, through this election we will prove that we can stand against the U.S. not only economically but militarily. They are sanctioning us, but this will be solved soon and then we will be a country sanctioning them. Tension between the U.S. and Iran has reached a boiling point as Washington accuses Tehran of supporting Houthis in Yemen firing missiles at cargo ships, as well as pro-Iranian militias in Iraq and Syria targeting U.S. bases there, including the January 28th attack killing three U.S. service members and wounding dozens. Iran denies any involvement, but has ripped into the U.S. for Washington's support of Israel and its campaign against Hamas in Gaza. At the conservative event, disdain for Israel on full display. Flags with the Star of David on the floor for people to step on. It certainly seems pretty clear how most of the people at this rally are going to vote in the upcoming parliamentary elections, but this event is really about something else. It's about getting out the vote. In fact, the supreme leader of this country has urged people to head to the ballot boxes to make sure there will be a high turnout. It's the first election since massive protests erupted in Iran in late 2022 following the death of Masa Amini after she was detained for violating hijab laws. On the streets of Tehran, get out the vote posters nearly everywhere. But with many moderate candidates barred from running, inflation high and the economy reeling from tough U.S.-led sanctions, some say they feel unenthusiastic when we ask if they will vote. No. No, no. The country belongs to the people, this man says. There should be participation in the elections. But it should be freer with the presence of all groups and minorities. It's unclear if Iran's leaders can persuade more people to vote in an election deemed pivotal for the country's future. And Paul, of the leadership here really putting on a full court press to try and get people to go to the polls. We spoke a little bit about the candidates that were disqualified. Well, more than 15,000 candidates are actually running for the 290 seats in parliament. And again, the supreme leader urging people to come out and vote, Paula. And our thanks there to Fred Pleiken. Please stay with CNN for his reporting from Iran all week long. Now, when we come back, a major Ukrainian steel company stealing itself for uncertain times ahead. Battlefield losses for Ukraine are imperiling one more of its plants. We'll hear from the company's CEO right after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. 
Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. Steel giant Medinvest is growing increasingly alarmed about the battlefield situation in eastern Ukraine, where it has very large operations. Now, the company's CEO is so concerned about Russia's recent advances that he is, of course, urging U.S. Congress to approve a staled aid package for Ukraine. Now, Medinvest has already seen its facilities in eastern Ukraine fall into Russian hands, and that includes a coking plant in the town of Avdivka, where Ukraine's troops were forced to withdraw just over a week ago now. Now, further defeats could endanger operations in Pokrovost and Zaporizhia, which are now even closer to the current front lines. Now, I spoke to Medinvest CEO Yuri Reznogov earlier on Quest Means Business about the challenges facing both Ukraine and, of course, his company. It's not the easiest hour for Ukraine at the moment. And uh, obviously, even though everybody understood that we might lose Avdivka for quite some time now, uh, this loss was uh, resonated in, in the population. <clears throat> and as you rightly mentioned, uh, this front line is literally 35, 40 kilometers away from our main operations. So yes, it's 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 very difficult. Uh, it's even more difficult to see that we don't uh, don't see any progress with, for example, U.S. aid, uh, which is blocked right now in 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 Congress, and uh, that that creates a rather negative mood in Ukraine. But at the same time, I think there is a determination to continue. There is a determination to help the country to uh, achieve victory, uh, and and uh, we are ready to carry on. Yes, certainly President Zelensky has articulated that will. But as you mentioned, Ukrainians are fatigued. I'm sure you and your company right now are feeling that fatigue. You are still, as I mentioned, so close to the front lines. You've said your employees have already proven, and I'm quoting you now, that people are stronger than steel. But how are you keeping them safe with Russia menacing, with strikes, artillery so close by? Well, we had to implement uh, certain safety procedures uh, since the beginning of this full-scale invasion. Uh, first, we had uh, built uh, cover-ups for, for our employees, so whenever there is an aerial raid, they can go and, and hide in those uh, shelters. Uh, for people who are not uh, able, because of, of the nature of their work, because they have to be on the shop floor, uh, they cannot uh, go into the shelter. We have them individual protective equipment, like helmets, like bulletproof vests. Um, so that that's that's the only way we can carry on our operations. Uh, as you can imagine, steel, steel business, it's a continuous operation, so you cannot stop it and start it. Uh, you'll be interested to know I am a former steel worker, and when you talk about trying to keep those blast furnaces up and running, I know exactly about what you're talking about. And especially, as I said earlier, because it's so material to Ukraine being able to continue this war effort. I want to ask you, though, about that in terms of staffing shortages. Given Ukraine is talking about further mobilization, they need even more Ukrainians to fight. So how do you keep your business going under those conditions? It's it's true. It's it's a difficult uh, situation for most of the uh, businesses, especially those businesses that are dealing in transparent manner uh, and and uh, fully transparent to the authorities, like like Medinvest is. We have more than ninety nine thousand our employees right now serving in defense forces of Ukraine, which is uh, I'd say it's almost fifteen percent of our workforce. 
right now. So yes, that creates a substantial difficulty. We are trying to to find a replacement. We are uh, arranging shifts so that people can uh, take uh, take some some extra time at work for for their colleagues who are in the front line. Uh, we also try to em- employ more women, and and that also helps to uh, to sustain operations. But other than that, it is a difficult situation. And as the war will will continue, as more people will have to be mobilized, uh, drafted, uh-huh. uh, that difficulty is going to increase. And as That's I true. said, given the continuous operations, that if you want to keep these steel plants going, it really doesn't have to be continuous. You mentioned USAID. It is now stalled, fatigue setting in, as you also mentioned with Ukraine and perhaps even with European allies. I mean, you guys had that company as of stall that was that really iconic battle, very sad and horrific battle that happened at the beginning of this war. Given all that Ukrainians there and elsewhere have sacrificed, what do you tell Congress right now about what's at stake if Ukraine does does fall to Russia? It, it's 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 very simple. It's the Ukrainian existence of Ukraine as a state and Ukrainians as as a nation. That's that's what's at stake. So if Ukraine fails, that means that uh, the nation failed, and that the international uh, law, international support failed, and uh, that will uh, it will change the, the the world completely, in my view, because it's it's going to be a new world in which you 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 cannot rely on international rules, in which you cannot rely on aggressor being punished. Uh, so that that will create a very bad precedent, in in my opinion. Okay, next for us, oh dear, Odie, why the historic Odysseus moon lander is now in serious trouble. So the Odysseus mission to the moon is coming to an end earlier than expected. Flight controllers believe they'll lose contact with the lunar lander in the coming hours. We understand that ODI is still transmitting data and will continue to do so until it runs out of power. Now, these images have been released from ODI's harrowing descent to the surface of the moon. We have yet, though, to see any images taken after the historic touchdown last week. Odie's antenna may be pointing in the wrong direction. It could have tripped during landing and ended up on its side. Kristen Fisher brings us up to date. Well, Paula, it's looking increasingly likely that we are not going to get any pictures that Odysseus took or of Odysseus itself from the actual surface of the moon because flight controllers say that they believe they only have a few hours of battery life left uh, for Odysseus to continue operating on the surface of the moon. Now, that means that Odysseus will have been alive on the lunar surface for about five or six days, uh, which is only a few days shorter of what its uh, intended lifespan was supposed to be, which is about seven to nine days. So there's still a chance we get those images that we've all been hoping for. Uh, But like I said, looking increasingly likely, like it's not going to happen. Um, We are still getting new pictures and images in uh, from the company that made Odysseus, Intuitive Machines. Um, But those are all pictures that were taken during the descent and then transmitted or sent back to Earth after it had landed. So two very different things here. And I know, I hear the criticism, people saying pictures or it didn't happen, but the reality is pictures, data, 
all of those payloads. That was really just a secondary objective for this mission. The primary objective was to see if this type of lunar lander, the Nova Sea, this particular one called Odysseus, was to see if it could actually fly. This was a test flight, and it was the first time that this 3D printed engine had ever flown. And it did make it to the moon, and it did perform a successful controlled soft landing on the surface of the moon, something that had not been done by the United States or a U.S.-made spacecraft since 1972. So for the folks wondering if this mission was a success or a failure, Intuitive Machines and NASA say this is an overwhelming success because they completed uh, the primary mission of a soft landing on the moon. Uh, all the secondary stuff, so, and yes, those pictures so far uh, have not come to fruition, but there's still a few more hours left, we think, Paula. Okay, Kristen, appreciate that. And India has named the four astronauts who will participate next year in that country's first crewed launch. It will orbit the Earth at a height of 400 kilometers. Prime Minister Narendra Modi described the four astronauts as, quote, India's pride. It's not clear if they will all be on board the capsule, but if everything goes well, India will join the U.S., Russia, and China as the only countries to send their own crewed missions into space. And finally, on first move, we're ser serving up some frightfully loud fish. Scientists have discovered that a species measuring just half inch can make a sound that is deafening. I want you to listen. Okay, get this, that noise can exceed 140 decibels. Yes, it's like a jet plane taking off at 330 feet. The species, named Daniela Serbrum, lives off the coast of Myanmar. In case you're wondering, the sound comes from drumming their cartilage, get this, against a gas-filled organ, which helps them maintain their depth in the water. Makes perfect sense, right? That's a wrap for this show. I want to thank you for joining us here on First Move. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.